0: Are you amazed when people drive their vehicles for over 250,000 miles? How often should you change your engine oil? What techniques can improve your mileage? Would an expensive fuel injection cleaning improve your engine performance? This is Car Guy with Brett Beachler at Beachler's Vehicle Care and Repair. Find out how to substantially reduce your cost per mile and extend the longevity of your vehicles. Welcome to Car Guy with Brett Beachler. On PureLife.com. Good morning, Central Illinois. Welcome to the Car Guy. I'm Greg McCoy, your co-host, and the star of the show is Brett Beechler. How are you doing, Brett? I'm
1: fantastic. How are you doing, Greg? I'm
0: doing great. Brett is uh, owner, co-owner of mm-hmm. uh, Brech- Beechler's on uh, University and mm-hmm. uh, and War Memorial, Peoria.
1: That is correct.
0: All right. Yes. Th- thanks for showing up again today. And uh, I just wanted to. Take off on some things that we talked about last week, mm-hmm. and I have thought of a few more follow up questions. We talked about the little uh, valve stem mm-hmm. on the tires that has the little computer chip in it, which yeah. I think is amazing. Yes, it is. <laughs> they can do that kind of thing. It must be a very small chip. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that measures your tire pressure and sends that to the to the dashboard, and lets mm-hmm. you know when it's. The, my question is, that's eighty bucks, right? You said something in that range. Yes, give or take. Do you have to replace that every time you replace your tires? No.
1: No, not necessarily. Um, they can last quite a long time. Um, the only thing that really wears out on them is an, an internal battery. Um, that's the There's two reasons for replacement. They have a battery? They have a battery inside of them, In yes. that little valve stem? Yes. The, the actual chip uh, component part of the valve stem m- on most wheels is about the size of about eight quarters side-by-side, side, so four and four stacked. So if you can imagine that inside your – it's not the weight of four quarters or eight quarters, of course, but it's – just think of it. Imagine inside your wheel, that's what's um, uh, bonded to your wheel. I shouldn't say it's bonded. It's actually screwed on uh, with the valve stem. To the rim. To the rim itself, yes. So um, there's – like I said, there's two reasons for replacement, breakage, and um, batteries wear out over time. So it's a novel concept. It really is. I mean, just uh, unfortunately, it costs the consumers some – money when they do fail or they break but the fact that somebody's monitoring your tire pressure is and you don't have to use a tire gauge at all um except for when you inflate the tires of course uh it tells you exactly you know a lot of gm vehicles vehicles tell you exactly how much air is in each tire so uh, but many cars are just have that tire pressure monitor on the on the dashboard tells you when one or more of the tires is low so it's it's
0: pretty unique system are they pretty much fail safe
1: Uh, they're pretty much fail safe. Um, Mm -hmm. the only time we replace them is when they fail in terms of the battery itself. Or sometimes we see it when they, they've hit something in the road so hard that it can damage a valve stem, but that's really rare when that happens. Mm -hmm. Um, it's usually breakage from either a tire removal from the rim, um, or the battery fails. That's Mm it. So it's, it's a, it's a, a theory in theory, it's a good system.
0: Well, it's interesting that you say that because after our conversation last week, I went home, and sure enough, a couple of days later, mm-hmm. the light came on in our van, mm-hmm. the the tire low uh, indicator. So I, I got out, checked the tires, and sure enough, the two front ones were at about 30 pounds, so they were low. I put the little cap back on the valve stem, got in the car, I was going to go to the gas station to uh, fill up the tires, and the light went off so i'm not sure what that was all about prior to you <laughs> prior to putting air back in. i shouldn't no. tell you that because the next time i come in you're going to check them and you're going to make me replace them but
1: no 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 no, not necessarily it could have been that they they were down only a couple pounds and you might have driven the tires and the the heat from driving might have been brought the poundage up maybe one pound it, they're very sensitive i guess it so. doesn't take much <laughs> to make that light illuminate hmm. so that that could be what it, what it was it, and that's pure theory on my part, but I don't know exactly what was going on <laughs> It's
0: a new van, I'm one year old, so yeah. it shouldn't be having any problems. But so anyway, but taking off on the tire subject, um, since we're in the in the winter time and so forth, traction control becomes an issue. And <clears throat> I was wondering if you'd talk a little bit more about traction control and the and the difference between two wheel drive, four wheel drive, all wheel drive, rear wheel drive, front wheel drive, <laughs> and, and which one of those is is better and 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 so forth and. Just talk about that for a few minutes. Know, most Do cars
1: it. anymore have front-wheel drive. Um,
0: except my pickup truck.
1: Except your pickup truck, yeah. Uh, the 80% of the battle, in my opinion, is having the front tri- tires and wheels with drive on them. Um, that's where the battle is won and lost in the snow with four-wheel drive cars because, as you know, with your truck, the rear-wheel drive on a truck is almost – useless when you get into a snowy type situation you've got to have that front grab is what they are it's just grabbing and pulling the vehicle um the other key to remember is a lot of the vehicle's weight is on the front end of a vehicle you've got the engine you've got the transmission you got the you know the power steering rack um that's where the advantage comes in is having the drive with the weight on it um uh, but there's some geometrical advantages, too, to having the drive up front, too, with the wheels that turn. But um, that's where the biggest battle is. I remember the year I moved to Michigan, I, had, you know, my buddies down in Florida and Georgia. Oh, you're going to have to get a four-wheel drive car when you move to Michigan. I said, no, I'm not. I'm fine. I would go through snowstorms in my front-wheel drive vehicle, just like guys with four-wheel drive. Is four-wheel drive essential around here? Absolutely not. Is front-wheel drive essential? Yeah, it's pretty essential when you get into snowstorms. So the biggest advantage is having front wheel drive. Now it's a great advantage having all wheel drive. It's quite frankly, it's fun to drive cars with all wheel drive in the snow because you can get traction and grip like you just can't imagine. Um, but it does cost you a little bit of gas mileage in the end, and I don't, I don't really know if it's nothing's worth free. The, yeah. Nothing's free. I don't really, <clears throat> I can't justify the expense of four wheel drive and fuel loss over the twelve months period of time driving. That's just my personal opinion. Um, but a lot of people like the comfort of four-wheel drive. But the key to remember is I think what people tend to do is they get inside these big four-wheel drive SUVs, and they think, man, I can go anywhere, do anything, but you still have to stop the vehicle. And what people don't really understand is once you have that four-wheel drive, you still, they stop just the same as a front-wheel drive or rear-wheel drive. You still have to shut that vehicle down. So that's where I th- think people kind of get themselves into a little trick bag because it doesn't decelerate the same as it accelerates with a four-wheel drive.
0: So what's the difference, or is there a difference, between all-wheel drive and four-wheel drive?
1: Yes. All-wheel drive is where you're not able to disengage power to all four wheels. Four-wheel drive is when you have the option in, for example, our our plow truck. We have the option to disengage into four-wheel drive, four-wheel drive low, or rear-wheel drive, two-wheel drive only. Um, There are some sedans out there that are specified all-wheel drive all the time. Um, they're really kind of designed for performance folks. Uh, they really like having drive to all four wheels, but they market to other folks too. So, but that's truly, it gives you the option of switching on or off on a four wheel drive and not so in an all wheel drive. So, that's what the key difference is.
0: Mm-hmm. So, for somebody with a rear wheel drive vehicle like me with my pickup truck, what are some suggestions for better traction in the wintertime?
1: Uh, the biggest offensive line you can put on that is having really, really good uh, tread depth on the tires. Um, I'm not convinced putting 500 pounds of weight in the back of a truck I was ask that. is really <laughs> advantageous. I used to have a truck with two-wheel drive only, and it really didn't help me that much. Hmm. Um, the biggest aspect is having good tread depth in your tires. If you have low tread depth and tires are getting to the end of their life, you can put 2,000 pounds in the back of the truck, and it's really not going to matter.
0: So why is it when you get these snowy days, you see these pickup trucks go, trucks go flying by you at 80 miles an hour on the road? <laughs>
1: I'm not really certain. That's that's an interesting choice they make. Um, uh, you know, hey, if the roads are salted and they feel comfortable doing it, have at her. But uh, I, I don't know how they do it. But a lot of that's time in the saddle for those guys. They're just so <laughs> used to doing it. That's amazing they can do it, but
0: not me. I'm good. <laughs> well, speaking of stopping the car, what about anti-lock anti brakes? what's the deal there? how do they work is it is it required
1: so yeah it's a good question um pretty much most cars anymore have anti-lock brakes in them so each position all four positions of the wheels have a sensor inside them and they're measuring the speed at which the wheels are going so say the car is going it's measuring against a car speed versus a wheel speed say the car is going you know 50 miles an hour the person brakes, and the right front wheel locks up that sensor tells the computer hey the right front wheel is locked up the speed went down to two miles an hour or zero miles an hour you need to release brake in that position so from a theory standpoint it makes total sense to do it that way i i don't necessarily feel comfortable having my brakes chatter and chime at me when i get into situations like that because i think all of us in this room grew up without anti-lock brakes and we we know how to back off the brake pedal but the newer generations don't they aren't necessarily trained on how to do that so that's where i say you know, it's it's a good attribute for the vehicle to have anti-lock brakes. So, it the computer literally tells the brake computer when to release brake on one or more of the positions of the wheels if, if they're in a skid mode. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's it's a good system.
0: Good system. Now it's controlled by the computer. So, how often do you cha- check that computer to make sure it's functioning properly?
1: Um, it's actually doing a self check. <laughs> all the time when, they, when the engine's operating. So um, you don't necessarily have to do anything with it other than if you have an anti-lock brake system mm-hmm. light that illuminates on the dashboard, um, then you take it in your service provider and they mm-hmm. analyze what's going wrong with it. Usually you see what they call as a wheel speed sensor failing um, d- just because the corrosion that's around here and things that happen.
0: Because you could go for years without having a situation where you have to slam on the brakes and so forth. And yes. You want to yes. make sure it's there. Yeah, when you and the, need it. Yeah, and the and the
1: key with anti-lock brake systems is everybody kind of gets into a little bit of freak mode when they have an ABS light that illuminates on their dashboard. But the, even if you had a complete failure anti-lock brake system, you still have your main brakes that are functioning. So that's why I always encourage folks like. You know, people call on the, uh, on the phone and, hey, I got an analog brake light coming on. Should I drive in? I'm like, it's it's completely okay to drive in. That system essentially piggybacks onto the main brake system, and even if you had complete failure and the analog brake system pump failed, and you could still drive the vehicle. So it doesn't mean your brakes are failing completely. Hmm. So
0: interesting. that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. Okay, good. Yeah. Now, another issue that always comes up in the wintertime is uh, – related to gas line freeze and how full to keep your tank and so forth mm-hmm. uh i've always heard that you should keep at least a half a tank of gas in in your tank just to make sure that you don't have gas line freeze mm-hmm. is that is that true What what's the science behind that uh,
1: the rule of thumb is is a quarter tank or more uh, they don't want it to get down below you don't see gas line freeze too much anymore because most fuel stations the quality of fuel has come up so far um they've they've gotten rid of all if not most of their moisture content and fuel Um, but the biggest aspect of keeping a quarter tank or more is keeping that fuel pump that's inside the fuel tank cooled with the fuel Uh, when it gets down below a quarter tank you lose that level of fuel that surrounds the fuel pump and the fuel pump tends to run a little bit hotter and you can see fuel pump failure and you know when you see a fuel pump failure on cars today they're typically four to five to six hundred dollars and um, anything due to prolong the life of that fuel pump is ideal, so hmm. keeping a quarter tank of fuel in the in the car or more is probably best now, am I guilty of running it down below a quarter tank? Absolutely, I think all of us are um, so don't feel bad um, It doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's going to have fuel pump failures if you're constantly running low, but you just increase the probability of a fuel pump failure if you're constantly running hmm. it in the eighth of a tank or or lower in some cases hmm. all of the time. I did not realize that yes it's yeah.
0: interesting. Yeah. So if you're out on a long road trip, uh, a lot of people myself included will mm-hmm. start looking for a start looking for a gas tank a gas station when you get down below a quarter of a tank and you still might end up going until it's empty. You're saying you really should start before that.
1: Well, I think it's more of a numbers game. Um, you know, if you're consistently doing that year round, keeping it below that quarter tank, I think it's one thing, but if if you're going on a trip and I do it too, I push it down to the you know the meter says, hey, you got thirty miles left in the tank because you just hate to stop. You know, I just hate to stop. Exactly, I want to get from point A to point B. Although I am getting a little bit better in my old age, older age, I should say that I don't mind stopping every couple hours on a trip. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, it, it's it's more of a consistency situation. If you are doing it throughout the year, it's one thing, but if you are doing it on a trip, I don't I, I don't believe it's that big of a deal.
0: Mm-hmm. So, it, is that a bigger deal, winter versus summer, or is that not a factor? Not
1: a factor. Mm-hmm. It's all the time. Well, not a factor
0: so fuel pumps are inside the tank
1: now huh yes that's correct they used to be at the engine and they actually pulled the fuel from the tank it, it was a little bit less in a f- less efficient system um they found it's much more efficient for a pump to push the fuel up to the engine as opposed to pulling it so that's one of the main aspects of why they changed it so um i, I don't believe i can't remember the last time i saw a car with a fuel pump at the engine that was I think back in the seventies, maybe <laughs> years I would early seventies when I was born, but um, but yeah they switched over I think back in the seventies or early eighties my dad would know better than that better than me but um, I just I've always been around cars that have fuel pumps inside the tank.
0: How in the world do you ever change them?
1: Uh, you, you actually have a piece of equipment either you have four guys that can lower a tank down, or you buy a piece of equipment that you can actually rest a tank upon. You, it's a hydraulic piece of equipment that cradles the tank as it comes out of the belly of the vehicle. Um, remove fuel tank straps and fuel lines and lower the tank, and then you have the tank right in front of you, and you can extract the
0: but if pump it's, out of it. If, in, if it's inside the tank, how do you get inside the tank to get it out?
1: You've got you've to actually take the tank. It's actually seated at the top of the fuel tank. Hmm. Um, so there's an access port at the top of the fuel tank where hmm. the, the pump is actually built into. And you remove the port and remove the the fuel pump inside the tank. So wow. it's not the only access is not just the, the the gas placement nozzle into the tank. There's another access to it. So
0: <laughs> Boy things have sure changed. <laughs> yes they have. Yes they have.
1: For the in my opinion, for the better.
0: Probably. I can remember a few years ago, a guy in our church mm-hmm. bought an old Ford pickup truck. Built in the forties, I believe, it was almost almost like a Model T type mm-hmm. truck. He brings it to church. He says, oh, you guys got to come look at this. So we all went out and looked at it. And you lift up the hood, look in the engine compartment, and here's this big engine compartment. And there's a little engine that was a block and a carburetor, manifold, and a few things like that. Two guys could have gotten inside that compartment Mm -hmm. and closed the hood. Yes. It was amazing.
1: (laughs) Well, Well, you have to remember, too, is we've pushed for better fuel mileage on vehicles. And back then, you're fortunate to get six or eight miles of the gallon, maybe 10 sometimes. Um, and we've pushed for that 20, 30, 40 mile in a gallon range. And one of the things they've had to do is lower the weight on vehicles. So that's really what's come about and in order to lower the weight is you have smaller engine compartments and there's less space to work on them. And everybody knows that people look inside their engine compartments, but it's like I've told folks before, I would take the, the, the reliability of cars today along with the fuel mileage aspect over the cars of past. I, I'm not one that likes to, and everybody laughs at this, but I'm not one that likes to tinker with machinery all the time and trying to get it to run. Now, the guys, my my technicians, love that kind of stuff. Um, that's why they do what they do. But I'm, I think I'm more like the average consumer that doesn't want to work on their vehicle, doesn't want to bring it into the shop every month. Um, to me, that's a waste of my time. I've got better things to do with my time. but um that's why i like the cars of today they're just so much more reliable than they used to be Mm -hmm. so we can pick on them all we want but they've they've done wonders on bringing the reliability up tremendously
0: and speaking of the 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 drive to get better fuel mileage, one of the things i think that is happening there to to accomplish that is the changing of the materials that they use to build the car correct
1: that is correct and it's the biggest aspect is the weight savings you know you take the You take the brake systems, for example. used to be you could resurface brake rotors, which brake rotors are are like your bicycle. Imagine your bicycle braking system. The rim on your bicycle is like the rotor on your vehicle. The pads were the pads. Um, So what used to happen is they they made the rotors so heavy and heavy-duty that you could literally resurface them, which is essentially taking a layer off the rotor to make a clean space for the new pads to bind down upon. You could resurface them at least once, if not twice, over the life of those rotors. Anymore, we pretty much throw away rotors because there is what they call a discard limit hmm. that the manufacturer um, uh, specifies, that if a rotor gets down to a certain limit, that it cannot go down below this limit. You've got to throw it away and put a new
0: one on. We used to call that turning the rotors?
1: Yeah, you used to call it turning. The technical term is actually resurfacing. You're putting a new surface on the rotor itself um but a lot of the guys of the past would say turning rotors and that's essentially you put them on a lathe and you turn them is what you're doing but you're putting a new new surface on them so things of that nature you know add a little bit of expense to the to the end user um but in the end i'd again i'd take a car that's getting 30 35 miles a gallon any day and Let's not be tricked. The gas prices are relatively low right now. We all wish they would stay. It has, a, it has an impact, I think, on our domestic suppliers. You're starting to see it in the Wall Street Journal and all over the place. They're, they're starting to suffer. They're laying people off because of it. And it's great for the end consumer. Um, but I, I believe in my heart that fuel prices are going to go back up someday just because of what's going on in the world. Um, the the tensions that are occurring, I think we'll see three, four, five, six dollars a gallon someday. And that's not me as a as a co owner of a gas station, you know, trying to get in and say oh, our prices are going to go back up and we're going to make more money. That's not what it's about. It's just I look at this more of a global thing, a global aspect of it, not necessarily as an individual gas station owner.
0: Things um, run in cycles.
1: Things run in cycles, and they're going to change. And I, what I encourage my friends and colleagues to do is. You know, just because fuel prices are down to sixty does doesn't mean you go out and buy a car that gets 10 miles a gallon. Just be careful and be wise about it, and don't go buy a house that's 6,000 square foot. <laughs> Sorry, Tim Johnson.
0: Um, so do you see that happening? Do you see a lot of people going out and, and buying these vehicles Oh, now. yeah, numbers
1: are there. You, we see articles in our trade magazines all the time that, hey, fuel prices are down, and SUV and truck sales go up. And then next thing you know, fuel prices go up to $3 a gallon, and people are suffering. It's like, you know, just try to be wise about your, your decision-making and try to think long-term and not necessarily in the moment.
0: I suppose in the short term, that helps the car makers, right? Because they make more money Absolutely. off the SUVs and the yes. pickup trucks and such. That Yes.
1: I, I read a number for every penny the fuel price goes down in our country, what it adds to our economy. And it's an astronomical number um, that would floor mm-hmm. everybody. And, and overall, it's good for the economy. I mean, there's some people that are going to suffer from it, but
0: yeah if you I live in Houston, it's not too good of a thing
1: exactly that's exactly right. If you live in Houston it's not a, not necessarily a good thing or up in the North Dakota areas, it's not a good thing um, because of the expense of them getting the barrel of oil out of the ground as opposed to the Middle East or down in South America um, It's just a different different expense structure for them.
0: I saw in The Wall Street Journal yesterday that the barrel that they put the oil in actually mm-hmm. costs more than the barrel of oil <laughs>
1: that actually does make sense. That does make sense nowadays. With what, what is it at thirty or? 20? It's under
0: thirty. It's yeah, probably it's, around twenty five, twenty six. Yeah. So, yeah. well, another thing that has changed in the last so many years, so many decades, is uh, tune ups. You know, I can remember when I was uh, mm-hmm. first into owning a cars, I used to go and tune up my car, replace the spark plugs, mm-hmm. replace the spark. Plug wires, mm-hmm. distributor, condenser, all that kind of gap. <laughs> and don't do any that anymore, right? How no, does that all you, work today?
1: you do, but not nearly to the degree you used to. Um, you know, cars before you were doing every 10, 20, 30,000 miles. Um, most vehicles anymore are minimum 100,000 miles because they mm-hmm. either put a platinum spark plug or an iridium spark plug or a double platinum in the in the vehicle. And ultimately what it does, it helps the, the consumer – save money in the long run. Um, and there is a purpose behind doing that. Uh, when you change spark plugs, you prevent an arcing process that could occur and take out ignition wires and ignition coils uh, from the the vehicle, which essentially adds money to your, or takes money out of your wallet, I guess I should say. Um, but that's why people want to follow their owner's manual as to why to do it is because they're trying to reduce their operating expenses. So if, if your owner's manual says to change your spark plugs at 100 or 120,000 miles, just do it. Um, you look at the cost per mile to do that, it's it's very minimal to change spark plugs on cars right. anymore. Um, some are a little bit more difficult. Some have these um, transverse engines where the spark plugs are in the back of the engine and the front of the engine. The fronts aren't so bad to change. It's the backs that are very tricky and sometimes require putting cars up on hoist to be able to gain access and change those. So it's not ideal for the person being a shade tree mechanic to change those spark plugs. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people that are listening to this radio show have tried to do it, but it's it's just not desirable to do it that way. So um, fuel filters, we're finding that a lot of vehicles anymore, it used to be very commonplace to change fuel filters every 10, 20, 30,000 miles. And there are still some models out there that require fuel filter changes because they locate the fuel filters under the belly of the vehicle. But what we're finding is a lot of the manufacturers actually put the fuel filters inside the tank so the only time you replace a fuel filter, it's not cost beneficial to lower a tank, take the fuel filter out, put a new one back in. It's just, it costs too much money to take a tank out. We basically tell them you change a fuel filter upon catastrophic failure of the fuel pump. You hmm. know, that sounds really kind of masochistic and people get a little bright eyed about that, but that's truly what you do. But fuel pumps are so reliable anymore. It's hmm. just, I'd say we used to replace a fuel pump almost every day in our business. Hmm. Um, I would say the consumers are very fortunate in this aspect that we replace one maybe once a month or two or three months. You just don't see the failure rate like you used to. Mm -hmm. So that's a good thing. So the tune-ups generally what probably the the hardest thing for people to understand is tune-ups is when they actually used to adjust the carburetors and make adjustments to them so the car would run better and more efficient. Um, Nowadays computers do that. So you don't, you don't tune cars up. You just perform maintenance on the car and that's it. So there's, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I, we still hear people we're, we're going to hear people for years coming in our door saying, Hey, my car needs a tune up. <laughs> well, it's not really a tune up. Cause that was back when we had carburetors back in the eighties, but it's, it's a, it's a mm-hmm. factory specified maintenance is what we call it. So if people want to keep their car 250,000 miles or more, it's completely doable. Um, but you really need to follow the guidelines of the vehicle and probably be a little gentle on the car the guys that drive the cars like race cars aren't going to make it 250,000 miles so
0: another thing that's changed in the last 20 30 years is oil changes Mm -hmm. you know back in the old days we all changed our own oil and was no big deal you went and got the oil got the filter change it no Mm -hmm. big deal and of course i shouldn't say this but we took the used oil and took it out on the alley and (laughs) spread it out in the alley i know that's illegal now (laughs) osha OSHA does not like that (laughs) kept the dust down you know yeah yeah uh, like, you can't do that now. So you almost can't get rid of used oil anymore, can you, except by taking it to a place like Beechler's.
1: Yeah, and we, we actually um don't necessarily do it anymore because what we found was we were getting – no offense to do-it-yourselfers, we, we still have do-it-yourselfers that come in the door. But they were they were essentially taking advantage of us, and we come into work in the morning and have 6 and 7 and 8 and 10 gallons of used oil sitting out outside of our door. Hmm. So then I got to take a guy to take that used oil and spend time dumping it out. So we essentially defer those people back to the place they bought the oil from, you know, the auto zones of the world. Um, And and it's no offense to them. It's just it it got to be too uh, labor intensive for us to take on somebody else's oil. And I don't mean this mean, but um, it it costs us money and it wasn't doing anything other than providing for somebody that, didn't want to take it back to the person they bought the oil from. So, um, we we recycle a tremendous amount of oil. Um, you know, down in the new facility, we've got a tank that holds a thousand gallons of used oil, um, and they're emptying it out pretty pretty often.
0: So, what happens to that oil?
1: They they take it and recycle it and reuse the oil. It doesn't get dumped back in the ground or make the dust go away or anything like that. But uh, they all oil is recycled anymore it's valuable yeah. enough that that they recycle it.
0: Right. And you can actually reuse it in when you change oil in a car. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, cuz they use base ingredients out of the oil um, in order to recycle it, but what's funny is with the this is how the barrel of oil coming down to $25, 26, $27 gallon uh, a barrel of oil. Um they used to pay us to take the oil away because it was so valuable. Now they just take it away and they don't pay us, which is fine. That's how the market <laughs> works. We don't get disappointed over that or anything of that nature but um the good thing is that the end result is the consumer pays a little bit less um so a lot of oil change places the way the prices were going we're going to have to go up over 40, 40 45 dollars to change oil but you know the fact that the barrel of oil price came down it's allowed us to be more competitive
0: all right well uh, i guess today the theme has been what's changed over the years and there's actually been quite a few things that have mm-hmm. changed uh but uh, again I, I think we're out of time so Time, time to goes wrap so up. fast time does go fast that was a half hour It didn't seem like it so all right well thanks for joining us for the car guy today Thank you and thanks Brett and My pleasure thanks Tim for doing the sound and we will see you next week thanks a lot Purialife.com